0: Good morning, and welcome to the Christian Faith Radio Hour. Today is Saturday, November 19th, 2022, a very cold Saturday morning in Chicago. We are broadcasting from northwest side of the city here. My name is David Canfield, and I'll be your host for this hour. As always, you can visit us online at our website, thechristianfaith.org. And if you have comments or questions about the program, you can send us a note at notes at thechristianfaith.org. And, uh, you know, we'd love to hear from you because uh, in, in these programs we're, we're talking about some things that may not be familiar to a lot of Christians. So if you have questions or comments, uh, let us know and we'll, we'll try to get back to you. So we want to begin this morning by sharing more about how we should come to Genesis chapter 1 and uh, um, how to have a proper view of this chapter. You know, we, we began to share on this topic last week, um, and we just felt we had to add a few more words because it's so crucial. You know, to have a solid view of the Bible, we really need to have a solid view of, histor- of Genesis chapter 1 and to understand that it is a historical account of how God created the heavens and the earth. Now, that does not mean that you need to believe the earth is 6,000 years old. As we explained last week, we absolutely don't accept that that's a proper view of Genesis chapter 1. The Earth theory teaches that the earth is 6,000 years old. But we presented last week the case for the gap theory, which uh, says we don't really know, based on Genesis 1, how old the earth is, because there's a gap between the first verse of Genesis, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and the second verse which says, and the earth was formless and void, or the earth, another way to translate that is, the earth became formless and void. Uh, and we'll see a little bit more about that in a minute here, but but first I just want to stress again, you know, why it's so important to have this solid historical view of Genesis chapter 1. <clears throat> because. All the seeds of the divine revelation are sown in these first few chapters of Genesis, in the book of Genesis as a whole, as a whole and especially in chapters 1 through 3. You know God's purpose in creating mankind, uh, how he wants us to relate to him, the fall of man, the redemptive work of Christ, all those seeds are sown in Genesis chapter 1 to 3. So if you don't accept that as a historical account of, of what happened at that time, it's very hard for you to believe the rest of the Bible, and we stressed last week, and we'll, and we'll say it again this week, Jesus made it very clear. Now, if you look at how Jesus came to the Scripture, he was a literalist. He, whenever he referred to the Scripture and quoted the Scripture in the New Testament and the Gospels, he always made it clear he was talking about historical events. So he, he told the Pharisees, in uh, he, in John chapter 5, he's talking to the Pharisees. He says, if you don't believe what Moses wrote, how are you going to believe what I say? That's John chapter 5, verses 46 and 47. So he was very clear. What Moses wrote, of course, includes Genesis. He says, if you don't believe that, you're not going to believe what I say either. And a lot of Christians today have this view that, we they're you know they're so-called intelligent Christians. Well, I'm I'm too intelligent to think that that uh, Genesis chapter one is a historical account of creation. I would never believe that. Um, so, uh, but I'm going to believe the spiritual things. I'm going to believe what what uh, Jesus taught, but not so much Genesis. Jesus doesn't really leave us that option. He says if you don't believe that, you're not going to be able to really believe what I say either. Uh, and there's also a John chapter three verse twelve. We we quoted. And again, that's a section on the new birth, where he's talking with Nicodemus. That's where, in the section where Jesus tells him in John 3, 7, he says, you must be born again. Some Christians today, or people who like to claim to be Christians, feel the new birth is not for them. Well, Jesus said, if you uh, aren't born again, you can't see the kingdom of God and you can't enter into the kingdom of God. So in 3, 7, he says, you must be born again, strongly stress that. But in 3.12, he says to Nicodemus, because Nicodemus didn't understand what he was talking about, he says, if I've told you of earthly things and you don't believe, how are you going to believe if I tell you of heavenly things? So again, I would strongly say, don't think. You can set aside what's there in Genesis chapter 1, the earthly things, and yet somehow have a strong faith in Christ. It can just never be. Jesus himself didn't say that. You could do that. He said strongly, you cannot do that. And one very strong example of this, uh, uh, that Jesus himself gives us, is in Matthew 19. The Pharisees had a question about uh, divorce, and uh, and Jesus, uh, uh, you know, whether, whether it was appropriate for him, whether a man was allowed to divorce his wife or not, I have to turn to those verses. Um, he says, uh, Matthew 19 verses 4 through 5, he answers them in this way. They, they, uh, verse 3, the Pharisees asked him, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason? He answered and said to them, Have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female? And said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So here, in responding to the Pharisees, Jesus quotes, first from Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, God created the male and female, and then from Genesis chapter 2, for this reason, 2.24, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother. And he presents that to them as an absolutely historical event that really happened. So if you feel you can set aside the account in Genesis 1 as anything other than a historical account of creation and still believe in Jesus and still be a follower of Christ, you're just you're just deceiving yourself that can never be the case now the world likes to tell us that we can do that you know satan came to eve the first thing he said to him he said to her was yea hath god said the world today likes to tell us no no you can you can set aside genesis chapter 1 you can think that that's an allegory it's not really true it's a fable and still believe in jesus but satan knows that's not true and jesus said it wasn't true so we we have to affirm strongly it's not true we have to believe in genesis chapter 1 to really have a strong faith in Christ. But as we said, that does not mean that you have to say that the earth is 6,000 years old. And that's what we want to come back to a little bit now. Um, so, um, uh, the Younger Theory, their view is that the first verse in Genesis chapter 1: in the beginning, God created the heavens, the earth, and the earth, that's a summary statement. And then the rest of chapter 1 explains that statement. The gap theory says no. Genesis chapter 1 verse 1 stands alone. It's a complete in and of itself. That's God's original creation. Then there's a gap. During that gap of time, you have the fall of Satan. He rebelled against God. And as a result of that, God judged the earth and probably the vicinity around the earth, including the sun and the moon. and so the rest of chapter one is not talking about God's original creation, it's talking about how God restored the earth and made it a suitable place for his dwelling. Uh, and so if that's the case, then we simply don't know how old the earth is because we don't and how old the universe is because there is that gap and the Bible doesn't tell us how long that gap is, it may be. You know, scientists say four billion years old is the earth and the, the universe is 15 billion years old. It could very well be because this. Whatever you say, you're not uh, uh, contradicting the Bible because the Bible simply doesn't tell us the age of the earth. And uh, Pember, as we quoted last week, he says, When rightly understood, the Bible is found to have left an interval of undefined magnitude between creation and the post-tertiary period, and men may bridge it as they can with their discoveries without fear of impugning the Word of God. And so that's, that's the view we presented last week. We do want to say a couple more things about it. Uh, here in a minute, um, but if if you didn't listen to the program last week, I encourage you to do do that. And and we present the case for for the gap theory there in Genesis chapter one. And with us last week we had Brother Mark Jordan from from Goshen, Indiana, and uh, and he explained. Uh, and I thought this was an important point that, you know, this gap theory that we're talking about, it's not on the surface of the Scripture. If you just read Genesis chapter one in a superficial way, especially the way. Uh, the most translations read today, um, you you may very well come to the conclusion that it's talking about, the whole chapter is talking about God's original creation. But if you read the scripture in a more serious way and really get into these matters, that's when you begin to see this, the gap theory and realize, wait a minute, there's more here than meets the eye uh, at first glance. And Mark used the phrase, he said, there's a trap door there between Genesis chapter, uh, verse one 1, one and Genesis one two, and that's an important point and as Christians we shouldn't settle for a superficial understanding of the scriptures and when you do look at it in a deeper way it really becomes very very clear no the, the scriptures do not teach uh, the young earth theory they, they do teach the gap theory but you have to to see that uh, you have to come to the scriptures in a more uh, serious way to understand that properly. But this young earth theory, unfortunately, it, it, because it's become so prevalent among Christians today, it just causes many people to feel they can't believe the Bible because we look at the universe and we just know it's more than 6,000 years old. It's clearly more than 6,000 years old. I mean, just the light from the stars could not reach the earth in 6,000 years. And the uh, and science, for sure, much of the solid evidence we have uh, from science shows us that the earth is. Way older than that we don 't know you know scientists like I say, they maybe they say four billion for the Earth, fifteen for the universe, um, but clearly much older than what the young earth theory would teach, so this young earth theory has really offended so many people and kept them from believing in the Bible is the Word of God, and again, to quote Pember. The guile of the serpents may be detected in its results, in the results of the Young Earth Theory, for how great a contest it has provoked between the church and the world, how ready a handle do the geological difficulties involved in it present to the assailants of Scripture. It's really so. And he wrote this around 1876, so this has been going on for quite a long time, and just causing so many unnecessary doubts about the Word of God. You know, as I was getting into the, this topic and preparing for this topic, I looked at this uh, issue of Christian History magazine. It's uh, The title of the issue is The Monkey Trial and the Rise of Fundamentalism. It's issue number 55 of Christian History. Uh, it's from uh, 1997. And it gets into uh, this famous trial in Tennessee in 1925. The, the Tennessee legislature had passed a law uh, banning the teaching of evolution in public schools and the ACLU wanted to uh, get that law struck down. And so they advertised for someone to, to teach evolution and, and to to be uh, arrested and tried. And they said, we'll pay your, your legal expenses, uh, but we want to bring this law to trial. And so a man made, named Mr. John Scopes did that. And there was a huge trial in July of uh, 1925 in Tennessee, just just blazing hot. And there's hundreds of hundreds and even at one point maybe a thousand people there just in the sweltering heat. Uh, and it was just a huge national spectacle. It was the first great trial of the century. And uh, uh, Clarence Darrow was the attorney for the defense, trying to defend Mr. Scopes, a very nationally known defense lawyer. And for the prosecution, the leader was William Jennings Bryan. And he was also a national figure. He was uh, three times he'd been nominated to, uh, by the Democrats to run for president. And he also served as Secretary of State. So, two very, very prominent American figures. One attacking the Bible, one defending it, and eventually the um, the high point of the trial was when the defense called Brian William Jennings Brian to the stand and and Darrow grilled him for a couple of hours uh, about the age of the Earth and about the uh, the days in Genesis chapter one. And uh, I'll just read a little bit from the magazine here. Uh, Do you think the sun was made on the fourth day? Asked Darrow. Yes. And they had evening and morning without the sun. I am simply saying it is a period. Darrow ragged on. They had evening and morning for four periods without the sun. Do you think? I believe in creation, as they're told. Uh, Mr. Bryan, I want to know, what I want to know is, do you believe the sun was made on the fourth day? I believe it just as it says there. And he goes on. uh, Do you believe the sun was made on the fourth day? And there was more back and forth. Eventually, Darrow said, uh, I am examining you on your fool ideas that no intelligent Christian on earth believes. Well, Mr. Bryan was not able to give an intelligent and coherent defense of what the Bible teaches. And ever since then, this trial, and it's not just this trial, of course, but uh, this trial has had a big, it has had a big influence on causing people not to believe in the Bible. So the way uh, the Christian history article uh, sums up the trial here, it says, the fundamentalist convinced the jury, because Scopes was found guilty, Uh, he had broken the law, the fundamentalist convinced convinced the jury, but not the larger American public. At best, the trial revealed that even among American Christians in the 1920s, there were two competing standards for determining truth, one biblical, the other scientific, and it was difficult to see how they could be reconciled. And so that's why it's so important for us. Another reason why it's so important for us to have a proper view of Genesis chapter one, so we can deal with these objections, not just in our own conscience, but for the sake of those who have doubts about the Bible. And so we we wanted to say a couple more things about uh, the gap theory, and then then we want to go on to. I think that'll be a good segue into our uh, second topic this morning. So, um, so as we said most for the most part we presented the evidence for the gap theory in the previous uh program uh, the previous edition of this podcast but one thing we did not mention was genesis chapter 2 verse 4 and this is a very striking statement let me read it to you and, and again what the, just to summarize the gap theory uh, is that verse 1 in genesis 1 speaks of god's original creation then there's a gap that includes the fall and rebellion of satan God judges the earth so that it becomes formless and void. So we would translate Genesis chapter 1 verse 2 as the earth became formless and void. That's also a valid way to translate that verse. And as we say, based on the evidence in the rest of the scripture, that's really the proper way to understand that verse. The earth became formless and void. So that, just in a brief way, is, is the gap theory. So Genesis chapter 2 verse 4 says, this is the history of the heavens and the earth, when they were created. In the day the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. So you have to look at this verse and parse it to really understand what it's saying here. The first, verse, the first part of this verse is simply repeating basically what's said in Genesis 1 verse 1. It says, this is the history of the heavens and the earth when they were created. Now notice it's the heavens first and then the earth and it says they were created. But the second part of the verse reverses the order. In the day the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. That's quite significant. Because the uh, uh, in the original creation, it was the heavens and the earth. But what we would call in God's work of restoration, in the rest of Genesis chapter 1, that began with the earth. The earth was formless and void. Darkness... Um, Covered the face of the earth, and then God said, "Let there be light." So He begins by restoring the earth, and it's not until the fourth day that God restored the sun and the moon. So, in God's work of restoration, it was the earth first, and then the heavens. But did also notice a difference. It talks about it uses this word "created" in relation to God's original work. And then, in God's work of restoration, it uses the word made. It does not say created, and that difference is quite significant because the creation means to bring forth something out of nothing. But this word made is not referring to something being brought forth out of nothing. It means you take something that already exists and you turn it into something else. That's to make something. And that's what this verse is saying. God created the heavens and the earth on the first day. Then in the rest of Genesis chapter 1, he made the earth and the heavens. He restored them to their proper function. So this verse exactly fits and affirms the gap view of Genesis chapter 1. And as as I say, we did not cover that uh, last week, but it's an important point, especially because it's right here in the opening chapters of Genesis, to support the gap theory of Genesis chapter 1. Now, the second thing I want to deal with, because this is also a a real stumbling block for so many people, is that uh, um, it has to do with how can you have days uh, on the first three days, 24-hour days with morning and evening, how can you have these days before you had the sun and the moon, before God made the sun and the moon in Genesis, on the fourth day rather. And if you're a young Earther, I think it's very hard to explain that. Uh, you may, you, you probably just can't. But if you take the gap view of Genesis chapter 1, then it really, it's no problem. And this deals with this attack that Mr. Bryan and so many others since then have made on the, the, the biblical authority in Genesis chapter 1 and whether it's a historical account or not. Because if you believe the gap theory, then you understand that in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, that's when the sun and the moon were actually created. God created the heavens and the earth. That would include the sun and the moon if that verse stands by itself. But what happened in the interval was that God judged the earth and probably also the sun and the moon during that period so that they lost their basic function of giving forth light on the earth. Uh, And now there could be a couple different ways to understand that. But what Genesis uh, on the fourth day Uh, What it's saying is that when God made the two great lights, it says he made the the greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to to govern the night. It's not saying God created them. It's saying he restored them to their original function. That's what it's really saying there. Now, Schofield, as I mentioned last week, Schofield... And he's a very prominent, uh, his study Bible, 1917 edition, 1917 1917 edition of his study Bible. He strongly taught the gap theory. And he says this about uh, these lights. Uh, In Genesis 1, 3, it says, God says, let there be light. Schofield's note is, neither here nor in verses 14 to 18 is an original creative act implied. A different word is used. The sense is made to appear, made visible. In other words, on the fourth day, these lights were made to appear, made visible. The sun and the moon were created in the beginning. The light, of course, came from the sun, but the vapor diffused the light. Later, the sun appeared in an unclouded sky. So, um, so He's saying the, the, the sun and the moon were already there, but there was a vapor over the earth that blocked their light, and that's one possibility. Another possibility, and as I say, is that the sun and the moon were very much damaged by God's judgment and on the fourth day God restored them to their proper function. And so uh, uh, when you understand Genesis chapter 1 in this way, then there's no problem with how there can be a morning and evening because they were giving forth, the sun and the moon were giving forth some light beginning with day one. And then on the fourth day uh, they were restored to their full function. And, uh, uh, and you had uh, the normal days at that time and of course also, I would add uh, the length of a day in terms of there being 24-hour days. The length of a day doesn't determine, depend on the sun anyway. It depends on the rotation of the earth. That's what decides how long a day is. So to say they're 24-hour periods uh, in this context of the gap theory, there's just no problem with that when understood properly. And so, and that hopefully would clear up a lot of doubts people again have about Genesis chapter one. Uh, so that's all we wanted to say about uh, the gap theory, uh, for now and, and again, I just feel it's such an important topic because it, having a solid grounding in this helps us to have a strong faith, and it can help us help others have a proper understanding of what the Bible is really saying and remove a lot of doubts about the Bible and whether or not the Bible is the Word of God. Uh, so that's going to do it for this segment, and um, in the next segment we're going to go on. I think this is, this will be a very good segue for what we want to talk about in our next segment, which we will begin to do uh, on the other side of this break. So we will be back with you in a couple of minutes. This program is produced along with our website, thechristianfaith.org, to help address the need for a healthy word of ministry among God's children today. In the Old Testament, the Lord tells us through the prophet Hosea, My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Our prayer is that the Lord, by His mercy, may use the ChristianFaith.org website and the Christian Faith Radio Hour to help the believers in Christ grow in our knowledge, both of our Savior and of our faith in Him, so that we may stand more firmly for the Lord and for His purpose in these dark times. Visit us online for articles on the Bible and the Christian life and to sign up for our e-letter, which deals with various biblical topics. To listen to previous editions of this program, look for the Christian Faith Radio Hour podcast, which you can access via our website under the Media tab, or directly on iTunes or Spotify. And if you have questions or comments about what you've heard on this program or on our website, or about the Christian faith in general, send us a note at questions at thechristianfaith.org. May this program and thechristianfaith.org website be a blessing to you in your walk with the Lord and to all of God's children, for his sake and his glory. Amen. Hello, and welcome back to the Christian Faith Radio Hour. So, as I say, uh, this first segment where we're talking about how people have doubted the Bible because of the Young Earth Theory, I think that's a very good segue into our next segment, uh, which has to do well, really it has to do, We're going to, we want to talk about Thanksgiving, uh, this national day for giving thanks to God. But first we want to say a few words about the push that's existed in this country for so many years now to secularize America, to turn us into a secular nation, which it has never been. Um, but there's this false teaching and, it, and it's pushed by groups, sorry to say, like the ACLU and others. Uh, strongly pushed. They say the First Amendment teaches the separation of church and state, so we, we have to be a secular nation. You can't have any kind of expression of faith in American public life. They just they always oppose that, but that's just not. First of all, that's not what the First Amendment is all about. That's just a totally false and they, it's a fraudulent presentation of the of the First Amendment. They know that. They know that's not what the First Amendment was all about, and they but they twist it uh, to try to push push their secular agenda on this country. America has always been, from its inception, a God-fearing nation, and that's true among individuals, it's true in our public life, and we have strong affirmations of faith in God, even from our government, historically. And uh, um, it's just un- it's an undeniable fact from the very beginning. My goodness, the, the very founding document of our nation, the Declaration of Independence, says uh, that we are endowed by our Creator with certain inalienable rights. So our rights, according to our founding document, are based, we derive those from our Creator. And of course that was a statement that was written by Thomas Jefferson. Now I don't know if he was referring to uh, Genesis chapter nine, uh, verses verse six, he, but he may have been. Uh, now he was not a Christian, he was a deist, but he still made that statement. But Genesis chapter nine, verse six is the foundation Uh, for all governmental authority in the Bible. And it says this, Whoever sheds man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed, for in the image of God he made man. So it really corresponds to what's said in the Declaration of Independence and vice versa, that our rights derive from the fact that we were created by God. We were created in his image and likeness. That's in our founding document. It's hard for the secularists to get rid of that. And everybody knows this statement. Almost everybody can quote it. Um, But it's there, it's in our founding document, and so many of our founding fathers were godly men, God-fearing men. Now those who want to secularize America today, they don't trace their origins philosophically back to the American Revolution. They trace their philosophical and ideological origins back to the French Revolution and to the French Enlightenment because it was during the Enlightenment, especially the French Enlightenment, when man made this fundamental turn away from God, the intellectual class did, and they rejected the Bible as the Word of God, and they rejected, uh, really, faith in a personal God as presented in the Bible. And they wanted to free man from what they regarded as superstitious beliefs. And that was, like I say, especially in France. And in the French Revolution, they overthrew the ancient regime, and. Uh, Uh, tried to set up uh, a government based on these uh, atheistic principles, and the result was unspeakable chaos and bloodshed. Well, that's been replicated over the earth ever since that time. And now, uh, okay, full disclosure, I'm going to be shilling a little book here for a book I have that relates to this topic. Uh, It's called Lawlessness, the Left, and the Antichrist. And the thesis of the book is that Uh, Satan is using these forces, these atheistic forces, which, sorry to say, are on the left both in the uh, public life and in society and in political life, not just in America but around the world. But he's using these forces to tear down any kind of moral basis for a uh, healthy society. The principles for a moral uh, basis that are set forth in the first part of Genesis, really the first eleven chapters of Genesis. He's using the left to tear down these forces, to tear down those um, principles, to create a situation of lawlessness, and so prepare the way for the coming of the Antichrist. That's really what's going on, in a nutshell, and that's what I get into that book. Uh, again, the title is "Lawlessness, to the Left, and the Antichrist," and uh, um, you can find that on my website, thechristianfaith.org. Uh, you can, and there you can download the preface and the introduction, and the uh, uh, of course, it's available for sale, you can buy it on Amazon.com, and, and that will give you the, um, uh, the full picture basically of how I view the situation. But that's really what's going on, and, and the Scopes trial was, was a part of that. Um, in so many ways, they're trying to push to make America a secular nation. But that's just what this country has never been, and that's what this day of Thanksgiving reminds us. It reminds us, in contrast to the French Revolution, which really was secular which was strongly secular because they were reacting against the oppression of the the Roman Catholic Church. In contrast, ours was a God-fearing revolution, and our founding fathers were God-fearing men. And to remind ourselves of that, we just wanted to point, there's a lot of ways we could do this, but because we're coming up on on the Thanksgiving holiday, we wanted to um, uh, just point, just to remind ourselves about the very first proclamation of a national day of Thanksgiving. Now, of course, uh, Thanksgiving had been celebrated in a lot of ways uh, since the very early days people began to arrive in the United States of America. Um, They, uh, from 1619 in Virginia, I think it was, and 1623 or so in Massachusetts, they both kind of lay claim to having the first Thanksgiving. But of course, the United States did not become a nation under the Constitution until uh, 1788 uh, and then you had the fir- very first Congress of the United States 1789, the very first president, George Washington, the father of our country. And remember, this was the Congress that approved the First Amendment and reported it out to the states for ratification. That First Amendment that talks about uh, uh, it's the Establishment Clause, Congress shall make no law respecting the establishment of religion. That same, very same session of Congress What happened was, there was a man, Mr. Baudinot, I think is how you pronounce it, he wanted to have a national day of thanksgiving, and he he submitted this resolution to Congress. He said, resolved that a joint committee of both houses shall be directed to wait upon the President of the United States to request that he would recommend to the people of the United States a day of public thanksgiving and prayer to be observed by acknowledging with grateful hearts the many signal favors of Almighty God, especially by affording them an opportunity peaceably to establish a constitution of government for their safety and happiness. This was the same Congress that approved the First Amendment, and they they approved this resolution. There was some debate, there were some who didn't want to do it, but the Congress approved this resolution to ask George Washington, our first president, to declare a national day of Thanksgiving. So to say that the First Amendment means you can't have any kind of expression of religious faith uh, by our government is simply a lie. It's a fraud. It's absolutely not what that amendment amendment was ever intended to do. It's It's ridiculous to try to maintain that and it's just so dishonest for them to try to use the amendment in that way. So anyway, so this amendment went to, this resolution rather, went to President Washington and I want to read his his declaration, his proclamation. You know, in my family, we have uh, a tradition. We read some things um, uh, before Thanksgiving, before our Thanksgiving dinner, to remind us of what this day is really about. It's not turkey day. It's not a day for watching football. You know, we'll have some turkey. You may watch some football. But listen to this proclamation. This reminds us of what this day is really for. And it's a remarkable statement by our first president, by the father of our country. So I'll just read it now and maybe make some comments. By the President of the United States of America, and I'll say this was from 1789. By the President of the United States of America, a proclamation. Whereas it is the duty of all nations to acknowledge the providence of Almighty God, to obey His will, to be grateful for his benefits, and humbly to implore his protection and favor. And whereas both houses of Congress have by their joint committee requested me to recommend to the people of the United States a day of public thanksgiving and prayer to be observed by acknowledging with grateful hearts the many signal favors of Almighty God, especially by affording them an opportunity peaceably to establish a form of government for their safety and happiness. Now, therefore, I do recommend and assign Thursday, the 26th day of November next, to be devoted by the people of these states to the service of that great and glorious being, who is the beneficent author of all the good that was, that is, or that will be, that we may then all unite in rendering unto him our sincere and humble thanks for his kind care and protection of the people of this country previous to their becoming a nation for the signal and manifold mercies and the favorable interpositions of his providence which we experienced in the course and conclusion of the late war, for the great degree of tranquility, union and plenty which we have since enjoyed, for the peaceable and rational manner in which we have been enabled to establish constitutions of government for our safety and happiness, and particularly the national one now lately instituted, for the civil and religious liberty with which we are blessed, and the means we have of acquiring and diffusing useful knowledge, and in general for all the great and various favors which He has been pleased to confer upon us. And also that we may then unite in most humbly offering our prayers and supplications to the great Lord and Ruler of nations, and beseech Him to pardon our national and other transgressions to enable us all, whether in public or private stations, to perform our several and relative duties properly and punctually, to render our national government a blessing to all the people by constantly being a government of wise, just, and constitutional laws, discreetly and faithfully executed and obeyed, to protect and guide all sovereigns and nations, especially such as have shown kindness unto us, and to bless them with good government, peace, and concord, to promote the knowledge and practice of true religion and virtue, and the increase of science among them and us, and generally to grant unto all mankind such a degree of temporal prosperity as he alone knows best. Given under my hand at the City of New York the third day of October in the year of our Lord, 1789, George Washington." What a remarkable statement. Again, this was by the first president, the father of our country based on a joint resolution from Congress, the same Congress that reported out the First Amendment to the states for ratification. So as we gather around our Thanksgiving tables this year, it may be good to read this. I encourage you maybe to consider that, uh, to remind us of what this day is really all about. We could go back over these remarkable statements that he made, that uh, that God is basically the source of all blessing and all that's good, strong affirmations by our first president as president. And so we thank the Lord for that and for such a healthy uh, uh, reminder of what this Thanksgiving holiday is really all about and uh, the real history of our country. This has always been a God-fearing country, and we hope and we pray that it always will be for the Lord's sake and for his purpose and for the sake of his people. Amen. So with that... um, we want to bring on our guest now and talk a little bit more about this topic, about Thanksgiving and about um, the situation of, the, of this country in general. And we're going to bring Peter Dong on now from Naperville. Brother Peter, are you there? Yeah, I'm here. Oh, great. Okay, good. Okay, because we had a little trouble uh, getting Peter on the line there earlier. Uh, we had him on at the break finally. But uh, Peter, welcome to the program. Welcome back.
1: And uh, Thanks for having me.
0: Yeah, uh, quite a statement, isn't that, by, by George Washington? My goodness. Um uh, yeah i i i uh if a president were to make that kind of a statement today it would be very interesting to see the reaction of uh of so many people but uh but the, the fact is it's there in our history the very first president he made that statement anyway so I don't know, peter if you have any thoughts about that or yeah no I, I
1: was um i was thinking the the fact the part that uh you said that uh, i find interesting is that you said it's there in our history uh right so that um the thing i find notable is not well whether people can say it now or not i mean that's a i think a a different uh question but what's remarkable to to me is that oh i didn't actually know that this is that this is what it said right you know how many how many uh school observations of thanksgiving are there you know in elementary school and stuff we talk about oh you you always learn about things about pilgrims and stuff right right but the um but there's uh nowhere in that men- nowhere in there I feel like uh, maybe I just remember wrong, but I feel like nowhere in there uh they mention that this is uh actually established sort of explicitly as a religious holiday, not just when the the Puritans who of course were very religious and by and large um were uh you know uh, observing something in Massachusetts but even it's established as a federal holiday um it's established as a religious holiday. Um, I feel like rather than, um, you know, rather than mentioning the fact and the, you know, the a- awkward uh, things that come with it, uh, a lot of people would rather just pretend that that's not true, right. pretend that it's always been a generically secular holiday to give thanks to kind of whoever you feel like, or to rather people usually use the, the passive voice, right, to be thankful. Um, and so it se- seems like easier to say, well, let's all just feel thankful um, and uh pretend that's how it's always been. Now yeah. one thing you can argue, sorry, go ahead.
0: Well, I was just maybe thinking you know, he yeah, he uses that phrase almighty God to acknowledge all the providence of almighty God. So it's a very good point. He's not talking about a general feeling of thanksgiving. He's saying this day is for giving thanks to almighty God, mm-hmm. which is a very biblical phrase. That it's not in other religions. Yeah. That's a biblical phrase. Really and so.
1: he, he also mentions making prayers and um, and supplications he says which yes. again isn't more than a feeling of thankfulness but an yeah. addressing to a specific person it is worded broadly like you mentioned um a lot of uh, people at the time a, a lot some of the founding fathers like jefferson were really more of deists yes, more in right. that kind of enlightenment tradition and so um th- but uh and so it's not like we can argue that necessarily everyone in the the Government or the constitutional convention or something was uh, was actually a, a saved believer right. at the same time what i what I think is important at the least is to acknowledge that this happened right this yes. is, um, this is still the, a document in our government's history right that actually did happen it shows that in a lot of ways the um how central belief in God was to a lot of people in the government who are pre- creating the laws and the Documents that still um, I so. govern our country, I and mean, we still use this—the last Thursday of November—based uh, on this original proclamation. Though I assume there's a later law that codifies
0: that. Yeah, it went through a few, a few revisions. It's actually uh, in Lincoln in the Civil War was the one I, th- I believe who made it an actual national holiday. This didn't make it a national holiday. This was the, uh, a unique proclamation. But in 1863, uh, Lincoln basically made it a national holiday. And, uh, and, and his declaration is also very, very striking. We don't have time to read that today, but if i would encourage the listeners to look up Lincoln's Thanksgiving Proclamation in 1863, and that was in the depths of, of the Civil War, the real crucible uh, that kind of formed this nation into what it is today. So this was not just a, uh, what uh, Washington did was not just a one-off. We have, so many times in our nation's history, even our government has has had a strong affirmation of how our nation is a God-fearing nation. Now, you're right. It's a general uh, kind of statement. There's nothing here about, you know, believing in Jesus, you know. But the point is that this is a godly nation that, uh, you know, to some extent has been so influenced by the principles that we see in the Bible for a healthy society and so this is uh and people need to be reminded of that, and that's why we wanted to talk about that this morning as we prepare for this national day to give thanks to God and I, Peter I appreciate your point like you said uh, I don't think I ever heard this mentioned in school myself either you know we grew up mm-hmm. I, now <clears throat> I should add for, for those who don't know one reason why we wanted to have Peter on this morning uh was that he is a, a school teacher public, public school teacher mm-hmm. and uh, so he's much more in tune with what's going on now than I am about the the public schools but even back you know I grew up in the uh, 60s and 70s. I, so far as I know, I never heard anybody mention this proclamation or Lincoln's proclamation in 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 the schools. People try to sweep this under the rug. And, and Peter, I think it's even more. You probably say more about that about what you see happening yeah. in the public schools today in terms of this this godly aspect of our nation's history and how that's being swept yeah, under I the rug, think, basically.
1: Right, and I think this. So this this is a a secularizing trend that starts in somewhere around the sixties or seventies. Of course, these things happen gradually. Um, and I think it is not so much some kind of conspiracy to hide the fact as much as just an abiding discomfort that comes with mentioning anything religious when you are, when you are talking to people. And so um, as the country becomes more diverse as, you know, the uh, particularly, uh, Difficult eras like the '60s socially, then then people when you want to bring something up, you cause reactions, you cause discomfort, and so you feel like it's better if I can just phrase it in such a way that doesn't bring up anything religious, Um, which can be well-meaning enough and maybe maybe very sensible in a lot of ways. But the sum result of it is not that you're forbidden to talk about it, but that no one does, Um, and so there is nothing that stops. I feel like there's nothing that stops anyone from pointing this out this proclamation out, but there is a, 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 I don't know, sort of a social pressure not to. So I feel like what it's part of uh, when talking about, I feel like when talking about people or events that still impact us today, there's a tendency to ignore the aspects of them that were religious because a lot of them were. So I have seen accounts of the the decades leading up to the civil war that um, talk about the abolition movement in the North, and neglect to mention or say very little about the fact that it's primarily a Christian-driven campaign. One of the biggest um, uh, drivers of it was the, a Christian feeling that men should not be put into should, should be not be
0: enslaved people. Yeah,
1: um, right. I mean, that was a, a large a large uh, part of it, but it gets kind of ignored because it's 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 awkward to talk about. So people prefer not to talk about it. Um, similarly, you know the 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 main song. Of the civil of the North in the Civil War, right? The song most associated with the North was uh, the Battle Hymn yeah. of the Republic, which is a hymn. I mean, it's yeah. a it's kind of a pointed hymn, um, but at the same time, it says like it's it's a it is actually a, a hymn steeped in biblical reference and addressed to the Lord. Like, glory, glory, hallelujah! I have
0: seen the glory of the so. coming of the Lord. Yeah, right. Glory, yes. glory, hallelujah! Yes, really right. so? Yeah, really so.
1: Right, and it starts with that, and that's the that's it was the battle hymn of the republic. Yeah. And while there's plenty of room for other discussions about you know how good it, how good or bad it is for Christianity to be mixed with the the uh, political trends of, of, in in that way, certainly you shouldn't deny that it happens. But the most of the accounts that I remember of the Civil War, or that I have seen, ignore how strongly a a dimension there uh, how strong a dimension there was of a Christian discussion because most of the people at the time were Christians. Yeah. I feel like that continues in a lot of a lot of places. Probably some of which I don't know because I'm not a historian. Um, so there's there's probably some that I don't know where actually a large part of the discussion is based on uh, Christianity. But they, it is it, it's just the writers of the textbooks, the teachers, whoever, just prefer not to talk about it because it gets awkward. So then you just don't mention it. And then over time, you just get the impression that none of those things ever mattered, that not, that religion was always kind of a sidelight. It was always something that was pushed was pushed aside, that was unimportant, that had no place in people's lives. And while certainly there are individuals for which that was the case for the country as a whole, that's not true historically. And I wouldn't say it's like you're forbidden to bring it up. It's just not frequently brought up. Right? Yeah, I,
0: this, I, I wish... You know, well, and... and of course, we're bringing it up today with a purpose, right, to, uh, for right. that very reason, to remind people, you know, uh, uh, that, that this is a very important part of our history. And and, I, and again, I'll say it again, I think it would be very good if, if those who are hearing this get a copy of Link- of Washington's proclamation or get a copy of Lincoln's proclamation and read it at our Thanksgiving table. How, what a healthy um, practice that that is as a reminder of what this day is all about. Because we we yeah we, a lot of people will not say these things and I I do feel Peter I, my my feeling is the uh, the left in America today strongly is pushing this kind of secularist agenda I just don't think there's any denying that I think that is whether you can use the word conspiracy I mean they're just not comfortable because they trace their lineage back to this atheistic view of mankind they're just not comfortable with any kind of uh, religious influence or reference even in this country. And that's why they're trying to secularize America. That's, that's what their goal is. Now, I, I want to be clear, you know, I, I was raised, from a very early age, I was raised, I was, I was a conservative long before I ever became a Christian. And when I was saved, uh, my I, at that point, I thought I was going to help God get the world straightened out, right, by pushing these really conservative. I mean, you couldn't believe how conservative I am, how right way. <laughs> but, uh, but when I was saved, then I realized gods he's not trying to reform America. That's not his goal. And I would say, no, America's not a Christian country. His kingdom is not of this world. So I, I, my salvation did not bring me into politics. It got me out of politics. <laughs> uh, so I'm not saying we need to push a, a Christian agenda in this country right now. But I do realize, I've come to realize more recently that so much of the spiritual struggle today is being played out in the political realm. And you see the evil, evil, evil things that are being promoted in this country. It just makes you weep. Uh, You know, Psalm 119 uh, verse 136 says, my eyes shed streams of tears because they do not keep your law. We should have a lot of feeling as Christians about that, especially in America, which has been such a God-fearing nation for so long. We should have a lot of feeling about that. But I'm not trying to you know, I'm not trying to Christianize America. You, you can't. I mean, it's just is it, is it a God-fearing nation? Yes, it always has been, and it always should be, and I hope it always will be. But you can't Christianize it. But you can't you can't extirpate the history either and say there's no God mm-hmm. Godly influence on our nation's history. So that's that's yeah. the way I would view it. And um, yeah. you know, again, I, sorry, I, I, show I, for my book. That's in my book, and yeah, uh, yeah which you can find on the website. But uh, uh, but no I, I I'm not trying to say we, we need to have a crusade to make America a Christian nation but we want to point out this our nation's history so people realize that the, what they're being presented with and what they're not being presented with as you say Peter in public schools today and elsewhere is not really according to what this nation has always been so
1: and I think there's a you know there's um, a lot of uh, from my experience it's not actually as I don't know as awkward as people think
0: it would yeah. be. Now, so, okay. So, Peter. So, so you a lot of, again, you're 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 a, a physics teacher, and so you have opportunities mm-hmm. as a teacher to bring these discussions up or to talk to people about these types of things. But sorry, go ahead. Sorry.
1: Yeah. So well, that's that's the that's what I was saying. Like I I have you know it comes up in in uh if I, if you teach uh some fields of physics that go go more philosophical. Um, and I'm a particle physicist, so that comes up naturally. Um. Because that's, that's when you look at the stuff, you have to start asking what is, where did the universe really come from and what is reality it actually comes up uh, much faster than you might think. So it's it's natural to come up. And my experience is students, by and large, are not afraid to uh, to talk about it or to hear about uh, uh, religious concepts, nor is it like it doesn't uh, – it, it's not a particularly awkward conversation if you actually have it. Um, the, uh, uh, by and large, students, mo- a lot of students, of course, come from religious families and they know that it's an important part of life. And for some of them, it's very helpful just to acknowledge that it exists, right? Rather, Even without saying, even without st- making a statement about whether it's true or not. Um, and, uh, more to the point, I mean, the, just to, um, I you know, when I was at the, 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 uh, I used to work at Fermilab and when I was there, I knew plenty of physicists who are really of all sorts of, all, all, all sorts of different religions, and it was mm-hmm. never a problem or any kind of conflict um, because uh, we—I I feel like, I don't know, maybe others disagree from my point of view, we all realized that there was a limit to our knowledge, and mm-hmm. we all realized the things that we didn't know, and we knew that in that realm of things we didn't, of the things we didn't know as a scientific community was the was re- things related to the things of God— so, while not all, certainly not all my coworkers were believers, but some were, and the ones who weren't were not bothered by the fact that I was a Christian um, any more than they were bothered by another one who was a, you know, I had a friend who was an Orthodox Jew, so he couldn't work on Saturdays, and that was hmm. sometimes annoying, but you just work around it, right? Um, and that was never, it was never a problem because I feel like because that's, the scientists realized that, oh, well, that's actually something that I don't have, I don't have a, you know, I don't have knowledge on uh, scientifically, and so there's really no problem. So I, but I feel like in schools, it's often not portrayed that way. It's often portrayed that science is somehow, if not the enemy of religion, at very least, like in a completely different sector. Like you're not allowed to talk about them in the same breath. Actually, when you discuss uh, certain, especially certain scientific questions, it's impossible to avoid religious statements of some sort. And so, or at least you might call theological statements. And so the, uh, it, it's, I mean, and I think that students, once they realize that, they're like, oh, okay, like, it's not that big a deal to bring it up. We, feel, we fear this kind of awkward conversation that will cause, cause, like, conflict. But by and large, my experience is it really doesn't, and students by and large are interested to talk about it, maybe because they hear it so rarely, that might, that might make it more interesting for them to talk about
0: it. Um, Yeah.
1: But I've I've really had I can't think of a single sort of negative experience I've had, or bringing up or a student bringing up or any conversation that uh, touches on science and religion and any of the matters. I mean, students are generally interested, and um, and will listen to someone who discusses something. Anyone who discusses something in good faith, they will be uh, interested to hear. They don't always agree with it. I don't expect them to, frankly. But the uh, but. I, I see no real problems with it.
0: So, so you can have these conversations even in a classroom setting, depending on on the topic of the day. Is that it?
1: it? Needs to be related. I mean, I, I yeah. have a, I have to follow. I am an employee. I have to do my yes. job.
0: Yeah, right. Sure. right. They, yeah, they didn't hire you to, to teach the Bible. That's right. Okay.
1: <laughs> right. Exactly. Yeah, so, if it's relevant to the te- to what's going on, most of these conversations happen outside of class, which I think okay. is appropriate. Yeah. Um, because in class honestly not the best setting anyway. Plus, that also brings out the people who are particularly interested and want to pursue this further. But there's nothing that says that in teaching physics, does it really, you know, the, the things that they have to learn, in, the government that says that they have to learn in physics, that are not really dependent on whether God's the one who made it or not, right? Um, and so they're not, it's not something that the grade depends on. That's all the, that's what the, the law really cares about. So it's okay to make mention of things that are unresolved or that different people think of different things about, and students are not usually bothered by that. That's my experience,
0: anyway. Hmm. Well, yeah, I'm sure it's pretty interesting to to be a teacher there in, in that kind of environment. And uh, hmm. and I don't know, I, I, we we were at uh, the city festivals earlier this year, and my feeling was uh, we met a lot of young people, and my feeling was they're searching for something. And I'd say especially it seemed like high school students, we had a lot of good chances to present the gospel because I think they look at the world today and they see what they're being ta- taught and they realize, how can, how can I live in a world like this? And a lot of what they're being taught just doesn't add up. And mm-hmm. they're not, you know, these young people, they're not ignorant and they're not stupid and they ask very good questions. And uh, so mm-hmm. it's, it's it's good to have the chance to be able to present something to them about faith in God in a general way. Uh, and then, hopefully, that can open up the door for uh, a real gospel conversation. Present them, you know, how you how you need to open your heart to the Lord. That's where you're going to find the meaning of your life. So, right. So, mm-hmm. but I just I just hope yeah I just hope that you know, uh, in, in this country there can be a reminder of what our nation has been and always has been, and uh, because. We just see, it seems to me that we're losing that, and it's pretty obvious we were losing that. The Bible has lost its so much of its influence, you know, and a lot of that has to do with what we were talking about uh, in these last couple of programs with this Young Earth Theory, which falsely presents this view that the Earth is 6,000 years old, and, and some other misunderstandings of the Bible. But that's that's why we have a burden to talk about these things, to help people realize these should not be a hindrance to... Uh, coming to the Bible and to believing that the Bible is the Word of God. Have you have you had any? Uh, we just have a little bit of time here left. Have you had any specific uh, experiences along those lines with those particular questions, Peter, about the Bible? If you had-
1: um, young Earth type questions, uh, well, um, if a Younger theory has to has to basically have a large discontinuity as you call it in other words it just has to be everything's created very um dramatically in other words you can't use current scientific understanding to right. explain it you just have to either say this is just what happens uh, but there's no way you could get anything out of it from also uh if you keep i mean i do uh, uh physics and sort of cosmology is not usually what people focus on people tend to focus on geology and biology oh. and their arguments and i know okay. little about either so i have Fairly little, uh, fairly little interaction with that. Though, of course, I mean, it can come up more with the sort of cosmology. Creation of the universe is, the, is a is a bigger question. But the fact is, I think that the um, <laughs> that once you realize that it, there's there that the most sensible explanation for the facts that we have, um, in my view, but not just mine, uh, is that there's a uh, is that there's a creator who created this then, I mean, everything else, in a sense, is kind of yeah. is kind of details after that. That's yeah. the biggest step really so. that, has to be, that has to be taken. If you focus on biology or something, you can, you can pretend that part doesn't happen. But when you start with the fact that the universe is here um, and had a beginning, uh, and that all our evidence points that way, it's very hard to avoid the suggestion of creation. And really so. some of them work very hard to avoid it, but others, just, others realize it and kind of give in on that.
0: So that, that, I think that's we're just we're out of time Peter but I think that's a good point uh, yep. to end the program on it really it really points to the existence of God when you look at science in a proper way. Mm-hmm. Thank you Peter so much for joining us today and uh, it was a good conversation Thanks I said. Yeah, yeah, hope to talk to you again soon. And to our listeners okay. thank you for joining us and we hope to be back with you again Lord Willing next Saturday. Been listening to the Christian Faith Radio Hour. You can visit us online at our website, thechristianfaith.org. And if you have comments or questions, send us an email at questions at thechristianfaith.org. And to listen to previous editions of this program, look for the Christian Faith Radio Hour podcast, which you can access via our website under the media tab or directly on iTunes or Spotify.